Thank you, everybody, for, for being here today. Um, before we jump into uh, Mark chapter 8 and continue our series, The Gospel According to Mark, just kind of two, uh, two things that we wanted to, to, to make aware and bring before everybody. As, as we all are aware, uh, school either has started back or is starting back, right? Anybody, anybody at school this week teaching or something and you're feeling it? Okay, yeah, okay, good. Uh, I know we have a lot of teachers here, a lot of educators, a lot of, a lot of uh, parents who homeschool. And so we just want to take a minute to pray over you. Um, and so let's do this. Uh, for all the introverts in the room, I'm sorry. Uh, but would you please, if you are an educator or you work in the school system or you are a homeschooling parent, would you please stand up just so we can honor you and pray over you? Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you so much for all you guys do. So let's do this. Let's do, oh yeah, round of applause. Thanks, Berlinda. Good. Hey, thanks. Um, and and let's, let's do this just because we're more cautious because of COVID. Let's just, everybody, why don't you just like reach out a hand towards someone standing up and, and we're just going to pray over them and ask Jesus uh, to be with them. And, uh, you know, Romans 5 tells us that uh, through the Holy Spirit, God pours his love into our hearts. So we're going to pray for you guys, especially that as God pours his love into your hearts, that that just overflows into your kids, your students, your faculty, whatever. So let's, let's pray over our, our educators and, and parents and, and families. Jesus, thanks for uh, how much you love us. Thanks that, that you came uh, as, as not just a great teacher, uh, but the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. And so Jesus, as we have these teachers, these educators, these parents of, of, that are homeschooling, doing their thing, Jesus, uh, we pray uh, that you give them wisdom, give them patience, give them grace and mercy. And Father, as you pour your love into their hearts by your Holy Spirit, um, I pray that, that this generation that goes through their classrooms this year and the years to come are marked uh, as a generation of your love, uh, that experience that in, in these uh, people's classrooms and in their homes and that uh, carry that with them the rest of their lives and that uh, as seeds of your gospel is planted, that they take roots, and that we get to see a, a renewal uh, in the lives of our kids and school systems because of the people in this room. Uh, we love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for all, all you do. Seriously, we love teachers. Um, and then Amy mentioned this a minute ago, but just one more kind of housekeeping item uh, before we, we jump into Mark chapter 8. Um, is uh, we do have just a lot of babies at this church. Okay, and we have more, we have more coming, um, a lot more babies coming. So if you are able to function as an adult, here's what I would like to consider you, you to consider doing. Uh, no, seriously, we, well, one thing we don't want to do is we kind of have two things that, that, we, that we really like to do, our kids' ministry, uh, Carol and Stephanie try to do. It's, it's keep, uh, keep really healthy safety protocols. So that includes the square footage of the rooms, how many people are in there, and we don't want to like, like break those kind of max boundaries because then if you have too many kids, not enough adults, like it can get unsafe. So, so we want to protect that, uh, but we also don't want to like turn away families, whether you're a visitor or you're like a regular attender or member here. We don't want to miss an opportunity for your kids to be in kids ministry and for you as maybe a parent to, to have some much needed time just like in a room with other adults sitting still doing nothing for a while, okay? So, so here's, what, here's the ask. If, if you're interested in holding uh, a baby or playing with a, with a little toddler, uh, what, what Stephanie, our, our preschool director, is looking at doing 
is, uh, is kind of splitting up our nursery into babies and then like the one-year-old kind of walker ages. Okay, so if you, if you can hold a baby or you can like hang out and play with a kid, like a one-year-old kid, uh, please let us know, sign up. At the end of the service, we're going to have an old-school altar call, but instead of coming to like pray, you're going to come fill out this card to serve in one of those rooms. Okay, so uh, at the end, I'll remind everybody. But, but seriously, I mean, I mean, you know, there's, there's just... There's just nothing like holding a baby. You know what I'm saying? So like you should, if, if you're like thinking, I don't like holding babies, you should do it more because it, like it, there's just something special about it. So our children are just so important and our, and our kids' ministry is growing, which is great. Like if you've ever walked down the kids' hall, like this hallway right here, I mean, it, the rooms are packed and it, that's, a great pro, like that's a great problem to have. Uh, but just this is like family talk, you know, like you all get together for Thanksgiving and there's like some people that are doing all the dishes after the meal and they're looking in the living room like, I wish I could sit down and watch football right now. You know, this is kind of that time where I'm saying like, hey, get up and wash some dishes, like go hold some babies. This is family talk. Okay. That would be great. Okay. I'm done. Everybody feeling guilty and shamed about not serving in kids ministry yet? I can keep laying it on because it's important, but okay. All right. Mark chapter eight. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or you have your device, you can find that. Um, we're going to be in Mark 8. We're going to be continuing looking at the life of Jesus. And so as we started this series uh, right after Easter, we thought maybe we would go until uh, like Advent, like Christmas time. And now as we announced and talked, Fred talked about the last few weeks, the end of Mark really coincides really well with Easter. So we're actually going to extend it. We're going to go to the Gospel of Mark until Easter uh, this coming year. We're going to take a little pause for Advent to do the Christmas thing and then we'll keep rolling uh, but we're in Mark 8, and we kind of, you know, if you, if you look at the way Mark is structured, all right, so, so Mark, the author of this gospel, it's kind of like a biography of Jesus. And the way it's structured is kinda, it's almost like a play. Like the first few verses, you have the overture. If, you, if you've been sticking with us for a while or listening, you've heard us maybe talk about this. Uh, the first few verses is kind of the overture, and then you have Act 1. And Act 1 of the play of the biography of Jesus' life and ministry is kind of answering the question, like, who is Jesus? Like, who is this guy? You know, so, so we've been hearing things that Jesus have said. We've been hearing things that people have said about him as he's, as he's done these miraculous signs and been teaching these incredible, wise teachings. And then uh, at, at the beginning of chapter 9, in the end of chapter 8, we kind of have like the beginning of Act 2. So Act 1 is kind of coming to a close. Act 2 is about to start up. And so today we're going to be looking at kind of the end of Act 1. And we're going to start, uh, the question is going to kind of flip from who is Jesus to like, what does it mean for us? Like if Jesus really is who he says he is and he really did what he said he would do, like what does that mean for us? And, that, and that's really the question that people are immediately having to answer in the stories that we see. And so what, I, what we're going to do today is uh, we're going to jump around just a little bit. We're going to read the first 21 verses and then we're going to jump around a little bit um, because as, we, as, as we're looking at this passage, I was reminded and I was preparing for today, I, was kinda, I, I started thinking about uh, the difference in my uh, two little girls. I have a four-year-old girl, Cora, who if you're here like five minutes after the service, you have seen and heard her uh, running through here. And then you've seen Abigail, which is our, she turns two in a few weeks. She's the little one with pink glasses and she's always running around after her sister. Uh, I was thinking about how they, the difference in them whenever we go to the pool. Because you got two, you got two kind of pool goers. Okay, you have the Abigails, who Abigail is like, like floaty on or not doesn't matter. I'm just going to run and jump in the deep end, and that's what. And she can't swim. She turns two next week, next month. 
Uh, so, so that's kind of scary. But that, like, that's Abigail. Cora is really funny because what she does is she'll put her floaty on and she likes to make sure, I don't know if it's like the earnest firstborn you know, kind of perfectionist thing or what, but she gets her little puddle jumper on, she makes sure it's right, and she says, Daddy, it's not tight enough. So I tighten it on, she's a little looser. I'm like, okay, you know, so like spend some time like making sure that's the right, you know, tightness. And then, and then she goes, so we go to the Black Mountain Pool, and if you, if you haven't been there, it like, there's like a slow walk into the pool, and there's, and there's like some fun stuff. So Cora likes to walk in, and she, and she likes to talk to as many people as possible as she's walking in, and let them know about every detail of her day. And, and uh, so she walks in the pool, and then she gets to, there's like always this moment for her, because she hates, like Abigail will jump right in, head wet, water in the eyes, no problem. Uh, Cora is a little bit more reserved. She does not like water on her eyes. Like she, you know, she swears that water of any kind burns her eyes if it touches, which we all know that's not true, right? Okay, but I mean, I believe her, you know, but what, you know, but that's her excuse. She doesn't like to get her hair wet either because especially if it's in braids. So Cora goes, there's always this moment where she gets to the rope, you know, and she can still kind of stand up on her, on her piggy toes or on her tippy toes and, and she stands there and she always has to make a decision of, all right, do I, do I go over the rope or do I go under the rope? Because she's very earnest, she doesn't like to break the rules. If she goes under the rope, that means she has to pick it up and the lifeguard might blow the whistle at her which would be the end of the day. That would be it. Like, we would have to call it, you know. That would, uh, or she would have to go over the rope, which, once again, she's torn because she has to climb over the rope, right? And the whole time she's sitting there with the dilemma, we're in the deep end playing, jumping in. Abigail's jumping in. We're having fun. And it's just like, Cora, just do it. You know, like, it doesn't matter. Like, just go under. Don't touch it. Just swim under. And then it's like this whole thing. My eyes will get water in them. My hair will get wet. And, and, it's this con- and it's like this constant, and like, Corey, you're not, like, you can't get everything out of the pool if you just stand there frozen. Like, you're just not going to be able to get everything out of it that we came to do. Like, the deep end, this is where the, like, this is where the fun stuff happens. This is where you get the most out of the pool. And she's just stuck there, staring, one, like, wondering, like, what should I do? Like, do I break my comfort zone? Right? Do, 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 do I get, do I go all in? Do I get my head wet? Or do I just stand here with fear? Or do I get out and walk around and it's like constant like strategizing? Or this like pleading like, Daddy, if you come pick me up and pick, like carry me over the rope, then I'll give you my gummy snacks. You know, so it's like, it's like a give and take like she starts pleading and things like that. And what we see today is, in the story that we're looking at, we see three different pictures that gives us different depths of faith. Like, just like Abigail, just like Cora, like, she, like, starts in the shallow end, she makes her way, like, gets up middle, and then has to make some decisions about the deep end. What we're going to see in this story is three different pictures of different depths of our faith. What kind of categorizes those, and then what the pitfalls are. Okay, so, so let's, read, let's read Mark 8, starting in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 21. During those days, which is just Mark's kind of way of saying it, at some point, since they had noth- uh, uh, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a very long distance. And his disciple answers, answered, but where in this remote place can we get enough bread for them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. 
So he told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a small few fish as well, and he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up the seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Damanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign from heaven? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Wink, wink. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, he said, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? So as we're we're looking at today, the different depths of faith that we can venture into, kind of the key key phrase of the whole thing is in verse 8, where it says, the people ate and they were satisfied. Now, I could be wrong, but uh, I'm not sure how many of us woke up this morning And the first thought we had was, what a wonderful day to wake up and go be with the people of God and be fully satisfied in all that Jesus is and has for me today, right? I mean, maybe even driving here, maybe even driving here, you were thinking about maybe maybe you should just turn around, maybe you should go back. You know, I mean, I mean, maybe even sitting down today, you're sitting here, and as the music's going, all you can think about is, is man, I, I just wish it was a little different. Like, I think it would be better if it sounded like this. Or why didn't they have this instrument, right? I mean, I mean or, or maybe some of you guys walked in the room, and you walked in the doors, and you looked around, and you said, praise God. I can be satisfied. I am satisfied. I'm a redeemed, chosen, adopted child of God, and that's all I need, Right? I mean, if we're honest, like that's not most of our default position, and that's okay. That's okay. But what I want to do today is, as we're looking at these, as we're looking at these, these verses and these different kind of depths of, of faith, I, I just want to ask: Are you more distracted or fulfilled? Like, if you had to put in a line, "I am more blank than fulfilled in Jesus," like what would that be? Like maybe it's, I'm more anxious than fulfilled in Jesus. I'm more afraid than fulfilled in Jesus. I am more lonely than fulfilled in Jesus. I'm more angry than fulfilled in Jesus. Because what we see today is is Jesus, for who he is, Offering himself 
to us, and all he asks us in return is to be satisfied in him. Like when it says that the people ate and were satisfied, Jesus is saying, I'm offering you myself. I want you to partake, to feast on me and be satisfied. And maybe today, the fill in the blank would be, I'm more empty than satisfied. But let's look at the different types of faith. We're going to look at three different types of faith today. Depths of faith, not types of faith. Three different depths of faith. We're going to look at shallow, middle, and deep. And so for the first one, like I said, we're going to jump around a little bit. For the, for the shallows, we're going to look at verses 11 through 13. All right, so as the Pharisees came and began to ask questions to Jesus, to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. So a sign from heaven uh, is different because if you're like, have read the story at all, you think, okay, like hasn't he given you enough signs from heaven, right? Like he's healed people, he's risen people from the dead, he's made lame people be able to walk, you know, mute people be able to speak, blind people able to see, he's calmed storms, he's done all kinds of crazy stuff. But see, there were different categories for signs. So, So they would have all considered those signs from God, right? Because if you look back through Mark uh, up to this point, it would say Jesus would say, I'll give you a sign from God. Or someone says, man, he's been doing signs and, and wonders from God. But a sign from heaven was a little different. A sign from heaven was like the idea of like an apocalyptic event that would bring judgment upon God, the enemies of God's people. Okay, so when they think sign from heaven, that's a little different. A sign from heaven, would have, they would have thought back to like, in, in, in uh, the book of Kings where Elijah like, poured all this water on the altar. He like, challenged the, the hundreds of prophets of Baal. And he challenged them and, and they couldn't set fire to their altar. And then he like, soaked his whole altar he made to God in water and he called down a sign from heaven. And, and fire came and consumed the altar. And then Elijah like, took the sword and killed all the enemies of God. Or, or like, they would have thought, thought about like, Sodom and Gomorrah where God like, rained down fire and sulfur. So a sign from heaven was like that big, like cataclysmic event where God brought judgment upon the enemies of his people. And so when they come to Jesus, what the Pharisees are saying, they're kind of doing two things. They're like testing Jesus, but they're testing him in a way, like have you ever like made a joke about something you want, like you're just trying to decide where to go out to eat, like you and your, your spouse or your boyfriend or a friend or something, and you're like, man, how about, what if we got sushi? You know, and like if it doesn't work, like that's okay because you're fine with other stuff. But if it does work, you're like, great, we get sushi. You know, have you ever done anything like that? Like you kind of make a joke and if it works out, great. So what the Pharisees are doing, they're testing Jesus, asking for a sign from heaven because it's like, okay, great. If it works, we don't have to worry about the Roman Empire anymore. Like that's a plus. If it doesn't work, we'll know he's a phony and we'll kill him. Great. You know, like because at this point, Jesus has been going around and he's been gathering enough people Like, think about this, two different times out in the wilderness, there are thousands of people following Jesus just to hear him talk. Okay, so at this point, they're starting to get a little scared, the religious leaders and Pharisees, because they're thinking, okay, this guy might actually, like, do something here. Like, he might cause enough trouble to where the Romans, like, would get weird. Like, like, this might end badly for us, and we might lose some power if this rabbi starts enough following for the Romans to think he's going to, like, raise up a little militia and cause some trouble. So when they come to Jesus, they say, they say, hey, Jesus, like, if you do it, like, like, you know, they're thinking this is a win-win for us, like win-win. E- either we get to hold our, our, like, place of good standing with the Romans, where it's kind of an I scratch your back, you scratch mine situation, or 
like something crazy does happen and the Romans fall off the face of the earth. Like that, that's, that's kind of what they're thinking. See, for them, the faith was something that they could use for their benefit. It was just something that they could, they could uh, it was just something that had become very convenient for them. And see, the shallows of faith, the shallow depth of faith, is when Jesus and convenience are the same thing. That's what, that's what shallow faith is. Shallow faith is you've learned just enough about Jesus to where you think you can use him to make your life better. Yeah? It's like the idea of sacrifice doesn't exist or you've waited out and it's not worth it. Because what the Pharisees have done, they, they've seen Jesus, they've heard Jesus. He's done all these miraculous signs. He's been someone who's been blameless according to the law and traditions up to this point. Every time they've come to him with something, he's had, he's had something bad. He's like been able to hold his own. They found out that he's wise. They couldn't deny. We looked a few uh, chapters earlier. They couldn't deny the works that he was doing or the wisdom that he was teaching with. And so they thought, you know, to follow him, to follow Jesus and believe that he truly is our Messiah we would have to give up a lot. Like we'd have to give up a lot. And so even the word sacrifice, like if the word sacrifice comes into play in our faith, we at that point have thought Jesus wasn't worth it and we've realized we're not actually satisfied in who he is and what he has to offer us. Because the idea of sacrifice is giving up something like really good for something that's not as good. So what would we ever think we would need to sacrifice for Jesus? Like what in our value system could be worth more than Jesus to where we think I'll sacrifice that for him? Do you see what I'm saying? Are, are, you, are you tracking with me here? Because whenever it comes to sacrifice, it comes to having to get honest and, 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 and give up convenience, what happens a lot of time is a thing called spiritual bypassing. Anybody heard that word before? Spiritual bypassing. It, it, was, it, was, it was kind of came to fame in the early 2000s by a Christian psychologist. He wrote a book about it. And the idea of Christian by, or spiritual bypassing is when you use like spiritual words or mantras or phrases to get around actually doing deep interior work. Like instead of actually dealing with what's going on in the inside, it's more convenient just to throw out a phrase. Here, here's what... Uh, Here's what John Elwood, the, the, the Christian psychologist that, that, that kind of brought this into focus. He said, spiritual bypassing is using spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep personal, emotional, unfinished business to shore up a shaky sense of self or to belittle basic needs, feelings, and developmental tasks. So the, the shallows are like full of people who say like, I don't need counseling, I have prayer. Or I don't need to have that tough conversation with my family because I have to honor my parents. Like I don't have to be honest about how brutal and terrible the holidays are coming up because it's easier just to keep the peace. We, or, or say things like racial reconciliation isn't actually that important because we're just called to be reconciled to God. And it's easier to think of justice being something done on the cross instead of something we're called to as believers. That would kind of force us to have inconvenient conversations. And see, the Pharisees were masters at this. 
The Pharisees were masters. They knew exactly how to test Jesus with religious language at the expense of never actually knowing what they would gain if they followed him as their true king. They came and said, Jesus, kill the Romans or you're dead to me. And ultimatums are not the same thing as intimacy. They never end well. For some of us, our prayer life, I know often my prayer life sounds like that. Jesus, maybe not in those expressed terms, but Jesus, do, these, do this for me or else I won't believe in you. Or Jesus, do this or else that. See, ultimatums at that point, ultimatums have shown what we will find satisfaction in when Jesus is calling us to find satisfaction in him. See, the shallows are made up when Jesus, uh, we find ourselves in shallow faith whenever Jesus and convenience are the same thing. We also find ourselves in the shallows when we weaponize Jesus. Notice how it says the Pharisees, they came to test him. They were looking for a way to make Jesus prove who he was while at the same time killing their enemies. And we're, we get pretty good at this too, huh? Like, all right, I don't want to get too weird, but let's be honest. We know an election's coming up. Anybody already feeling anxious about an election year coming up? I am. I just have so many friends, right? Like, I don't want to lose it. Like, I feel like it's been two years of, like, talking to people again. Like, let's not start this weirdness. But let me ask this. Let me ask this. Let me just ask. Um, maybe some of us have spent more time praying for who we want to get elected than for someone we know to come to know Jesus in faith. Because it's easier to weaponize Jesus than it is to find satisfaction in him and want others to have that same satisfaction. See, Jesus wants one of the Pharisees to want him more than what they could get from him. He's not interested in in like a vending machine relationship. He's not interested in a a relationship where he's just a baseball bat that we get to carry around. Jesus wants us to want him. And he wants us to come to him, meet him, and be satisfied. See, the, the pitfalls of shallow depth faith The pitfall of the shallows is that we trade intimacy with God for a comfort zone. Because if we weaponize Jesus and we only use Jesus for our convenience, we can keep everything at arm's length. Because we don't have to actually have conversation. Which, by the way, this is where, like, if you're thinking about it, like, connect groups, this is where most connect groups, like, Bible studies, whatever, start out. Right? It's the, hey, what did you get out of the lesson this week? Or whatever, you're reading a book, you're going through a book of the Bible. What, What did you... And it's always only like knowledge answers. Well, I noticed that Jesus did what, whatever. You know, like I even got into a commentary or whatever. And it never makes it past arm's length answers where we can use knowledge and we can use stuff like that. But a comfort zone is the, is the pitfall of intimacy with Jesus. So here, here's, what, here's what like a, like a, a pretty brutal image, real life image of us in in American Christianity, shallow faith looks like. A recent Barna study, Barna is like kind of the premier like Christian research group. Uh, Barna put out a study that showed nearly, nearly, not not 100%, but nearly, 
100% of Christians believe that the best thing that could ever happen to them was coming to know Jesus in faith. What's interesting is that less than half of those same people think that it's wrong to share their faith and hope that someone of a different faith would come to share the same faith. So that means is you had, if you took 100 people, there's about 100 people in this room, and I said, hey, raise your hand, we're not doing this, but I'd say, hey, raise your hand if you think coming to know Jesus through faith and having an intimate relationship with Jesus is the best thing that's ever happened to you, and everyone raised their hand. And then I said, how many of you think that what happened to you should happen to someone else who shares a different faith? And over half of us put our hands down. See, the the comfort zone doesn't allow us to do the main thing Jesus commanded us to do, which was to go and make disciples. I mean, that's like brutal if you think about it. Because how can we want someone to find satisfaction in something we've not found satisfaction in? See, Jesus is calling us to do that. It's like saying, I know Jesus, but he's not worth blank. Like, I know Jesus, but he's not worth, like, awkward conversations with my coworkers. Like, I I know Jesus, but he's not worth, like, if I share the gospel with my neighbor, they may never talk to me again. Like, Jesus is just not worth it. And this sounds harsh, but guys, this this is what shallow faith looks like. And if you're here today, let me just, if that's where you are, let me just say, and, and it happens in seasons, this is not like a linear progression. Let me just say, just for me personally, like, this has been something I, as a 30-year-old dude, has had to stand up here and preach today. Like, I've been very convicted for a few weeks because I've lived next to my neighbors for three years. And most of them never talked to Jesus about, okay? So, like, this is, for me, if I want to get out of the shallow faith, I have to find more satisfaction and fulfillment in Jesus than I do in what my neighbors think of me or that awkward conversation with my family that I know I have to deal with. Like, like I have to do that. Okay. You guys still with me? All right, great. It gets better from here. Okay. So we look at the shell. Let's look at the, the middle depth. All right, verses 14 through 21. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for the one loaf that they had with them in the boat. So be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of leaven. I love the way John puts, except for the one loaf they had with them in the boat. Like, all right, let's all do interpretation by voting. How many of you think Mark is alluding to Jesus there? Yep, okay, let's try it again. How many of you think Mark is alluding to Jesus there? Yeah, he is, because later on we see like in, in Matthew and in, and in John, like they kind of they riff on this a little more, go into a little more detail than Mark does, and, and you know, Jesus says like, hey, I am the bread of life, you know, like he goes into that whole thing, because they had no, no bread in the boat uh, with them except for the one loaf they had with them in the boat. So, so what Mark's doing is he's kind of setting up this next part to, to really, the, the, that kind of in verses 17 through 19, that, that little paragraph where I think Mark is just kind of paraphrasing a really long sermon he gave the disciples because he had to fit this whole thing on one scroll front and back. So like what I think Mark's doing is he's preparing us for like the, the lecture that the disciples are going to get in a little bit. Okay, so, and what he does is he, he says, um, you know, the, the Jesus being the opportunist that he is, he's always looking around at the immediate 
the immediate surroundings and then drawing truths out of that to teach people. He said, he said hey guys, like I, I know you're getting hungry, but here's what I want you. I want you to beware of the stuff that actually doesn't fulfill. I want you to, I want you to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of, Hevet, uh, and that of Herod. And that's really, that's the yeast of unbelief. It's the yeast of doubt. Because once that get in, gets in, it spreads. Right, because any, anybody remember what Herod did? Like he would listen to John the Baptist, and, it, and he liked, it even said like he liked what he had to say, that's why he didn't kill him. Like he thought he, what, he, what he was saying was interesting. But then at the end of the day, what did Herod do to John the Baptist? He executed him, right, right. He executed him in a, in a moment of, of fleeting pleasure. And then the Pharisees, they would listen to Jesus, but they wouldn't believe him. And ultimately, they, they're going to kill him as well. Spoiler alert. But Jesus, um, we're looking at the, or the disciples, they did what any good like, small group would do. This is where mo- the, the, middle, the middle depths is where most like, small groups or growth groups get. Like if you, if you hang out with each other for more than a few months. Okay? They... Uh, they took a verse of Jesus, they all read it, and then they asked the question, what does that mean to you? <laughs> right, okay, so, and then that's like all it gets, right? So, so verse 16, so they discussed this with, with one another, and then they came back and they said, well, it's because we have no bread. It's because we, we, we have no bread. Um, so what they're doing is they're already, they're already missing it, right? Because while they probably didn't suffer from the yeast of unbelief, at least not all of them, uh, they did and were tempted by it. They were. I mean, think of it like what Peter did the night Jesus was, cruci- was, was arrested and, and, and brutally beaten. Right? He denied Jesus. He said, I don't know him. Right? I mean, that's some of that, the yeast of unbelief coming out. Like, is Jesus going to do what he said he was? A bunch of the disciples ran away whenever he got arrested. You know, John, I mean, uh, Thomas got to the point where he was like, I don't even know. Like, I don't know if I believe. I don't know. See, they, they were, they just couldn't believe it. So, so Jesus, verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, right? He, says, he said, why are, you, why are you talking about this? Like, do you still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Like, these are just brutal rebukes that Jesus has given them over and over. Verse 19, he says, hey, when I broke the five loaves, he's like, remember when I did this a few months ago? How many, how many pieces of leftover food from basically nothing, all right? Basically nothing. How many pieces of leftover food did you pick up when I was done, and they said 12. And verse 20, he said, and when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000 just like a few days ago, how many basketfuls did you pick up then? He said seven. He said, do you still not understand? Like, do you still not understand? See, the disciples were willing to go a step further than the Pharisees. They were, able to, they were willing to follow Jesus. They were willing to obey Jesus. They had even been sent out by Jesus Earlier in the, in the gospel, they had been sent out by Jesus and did miraculous works, were casting out demons, were healing people, were preaching the gospel, were doing what Jesus told them to do. But they get to this point, and Jesus is like, do you still not get it? See, the thing that they didn't get, the thing they weren't grasping, those numbers, the number 12 and the number 7, all throughout the Bible, 12 is the number of divine government. So anytime God establishes like a divine government, you know, the tribes in Israel, you know, the disciples, you know, in Revelation, it talks about the, the 12 elders sitting on, like that's the number, that's when the, the number of divine government is complete. And the number seven, all throughout scriptures, is when it's the number of completion or fulfillment. All right, side note, not perfection. Perfection is never mentioned in the Bible. The Garden of Eden wasn't perfect. We can email about that later. It was complete. Okay, we'll t- we can email Bible nerd stuff later. Maybe we'll have a cup of coffee in the morning. 
But it's, those are the numbers of completion. Those are the numbers of fulfillment. Those are the numbers that say when God gets here, it's good. And it's done. It's when, it's when God on the seventh day was able to rest. Right? It's why we, in a seven-day period, are to take a day to rest and worship. Rest in God and worship God. We're supposed to rest. See, they just couldn't quite fathom that Jesus was actually enough. Like, he actually was the fulfillment. Like they, they just couldn't quite grab, like, like, really? Like, Jesus, you're really going to provide and do all this? Like, man, Jesus, I'm willing to take the next step in you. Like, I'm, I'm willing to do, I, man, I'll, I'll hold babies and come at the end of the service and put my name and information down for Carol to call me this week. I'll do that. But, like, but like Jesus, like, really? Like, when our, when our rent goes up and we're not going to be able to afford it at the end of this lease, like, am I, are you really going to have a place for me to stay? Like, man, Jesus, like, like, like when I'm feeling the loneliest, are you really going to be there for me? Like, when I'm feeling the most hurt and broken, are you really going to provide and heal and, and, and give your grace and refreshing to me? See, the, the, the pitfall of the middle, middle depth is that experience replaces intimacy with Jesus. Because here's what the disciples were doing. Instead of, instead of being able to step back and see the full picture and the reality and the bigness of what Jesus had done for them, they were, just only, they were only there for the next cool thing, the next experience, the next thing. See, it, it, it's real easy whenever we, whenever we can't quite believe that Jesus really is good enough, then, then we find ourselves like as we're praying for something, we're strategically thinking of how to answer that that question that we're given to Jesus. And I'm not saying wisdom and, and, and doing the right thing, like, like taking action isn't the right move, but I'm just saying there are, there are times where we trust ourselves more than we trust Jesus. We trust what we can do more than we trust Jesus. Or we find ourselves thinking, I don't actually think Jesus will meet with me if I pray, so like I'll just wait until Sunday when I'm in the room with people and that'll be kind of my hit for the week. Like if I could just get that next experience. Or, or like, or like, it's hard for you to like sit in this room and worship and, and hear people because it's like, man, like it's just not like that experience I had last year at that retreat or that conference or when I went down to Passion City for the weekend or whatever. Like it's just, like it's just not the same thing. And so you find yourself wanting experience more than you want intimacy because it's just not enough. Or it's where it's hard to stay disciplined to pray because every time you pray, you want to feel like the presence of God hit you and you heard the voice in the heavens open, opened up and like the glory cloud came down and you want that every time and maybe that's happened for you before, but the last month, just like, that's not it. Like you're not even sure if your prayers are making it through the ceiling. And the, the idea of discipline and commitment gets replaced with just wanting an experience. See, that middle depth of faith, that's, that's what happens there. So here's what happens a lot of time. The result of that is a therapeutic faith where the end is no longer Jesus. The end is like a good feeling or like inner peace. You know, like, yeah, I'll practice, I'll practice fasting because it'll also help kickstart my metabolism, right? Like the means to the end are the same, but the means no longer become the end to Jesus. The end becomes self-fulfillment or inner peace or a calm 
that doesn't come from Jesus, that just comes from basic physiological check boxes, you know? Because it, it becomes a therapeutic faith. It means, I, and listen, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't do things like all of like peace and refreshing and, and, and calm and quiet. Those are all incredible benefits that come with, Je- like Jesus gives us, but they're not Jesus. Like there's no replacement for the seasons where you just keep trudging, you keep praying, opening the word, meeting together, talking with people. Because in the middle, if it's therapeutic faith, then the only then you get to the conversation in the small group with like, hey, how are you doing? You say, man, it's been a hard week. And somebody says, why? And 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 it becomes, I don't, you know, it's just some family stuff, and that's it. Wall, boom. It's just a wall up. And so when we look for the deep faith, when, when we are sitting here today and we're saying, okay, that's where I am or that's where I am. I'm in the shallows. I'm in the, di- I'm in the middle. How do I get to a deep? I want a deep faith. Let's go look back to the first 10 verses. So during those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to them and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, they'll collapse along the way because some of them have come a long distance. So the first thing that we see is that deep deep faith in Jesus, it comes from nothing. Okay? Like what did did these people bring with them to, to see and hear Jesus? They had nothing. And it had absolutely nothing. Like, I just wonder how many of us, including myself, this is the question I've been asking myself this week. Like, when's the last time I've recognized Jesus' compassion for me? And in the midst of that, I've said, Jesus, it's been four days, or it's been four months, or it's been a year since I have felt your compassion. Don't send me away today. Don't send me away. And I can go turn on worship music. That's a great avenue. Jesus, I could open your word today. That's a fantastic resource and tool that God has given us to help us know him better and grow in him. But, but I mean, look at the people. Look what Jesus says about them. They have nothing. They've been with me three days with nothing to eat, which is, sidebar, why fasting is so important as a spiritual discipline. Because when you're fasting, you're attacking and you're, you're showing the one thing that all of our like, gut reaction desires come from, the stomach. And we're learning to feast on Jesus instead of the flesh. Because when we're fasting, we're saying, Jesus, all of my desires are ultimately from the stomach and, the, and it goes out from there. My deepest desires, I'm not going to give into those. I'm going to learn to feast on you today, Jesus. Okay, sidebar. But look at these people. They come. They have absolutely nothing. He says, they've been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I'm not going to send them away hungry. They've come a long distance. Some of us in our prayer lives, it feels like a long distance. And maybe, maybe it has been months or years since you have been alone with God, brought nothing, just gotten alone and said, Jesus, I'm not going to go because I can't, I can't make it. See, when you bring nothing, the desperation level rises. And if the goal is to be satisfied in Jesus and nothing else, why would we bring anything else to him? 
See, the people, they had a holy longing that turned, or that turned into a lingering in the presence of Jesus, and they received his provision and experienced his power. It's like me, you know, the hardest thing for me to leave whenever I sit, whenever I'm like going to have prayer with Jesus, the hardest thing that I have to leave is my brain. Because, guys, I, I've like done the timer, like I'm going to pray for 15, 15 minutes today. Uninterrupted time. Like I don't do this a lot. I don't think I'm like a, a saint. Like I'm going to do it. 15 minutes, I'm going to get alone, set a timer, pray. And I've thought through every conversation I've had in the last three weeks. And I've thought through everything I should have done differently or, or wondered about or anxiety and fear and worry I have. And I look at the timer and three and a half minutes has gone by. Right? I mean, that like, but if I could learn to come to Jesus with nothing. I heard someone say that when you're praying every time, every time you get distracted, that's another opportunity to come to Jesus. If I could learn to come to Jesus with nothing, with a, with a, with a holy longing and a lingering, I said, Jesus, you had compassion on those people and you fed them. I need you to feed me right now. I'm refusing to be satisfied and fulfilled with anything else. Give me yourself. I just wonder what that, how long it would take for us to have that longing and lingering so that we receive his provision and power. So the second thing we see is that deep faith comes to Jesus with nothing. The second thing is that deep faith obeys. It obeys Jesus. I mean, it's just simple stuff here. But look, Jesus says, you know how many loaves they have? Seven loaves. Verse 6, he told the crowd, he said, sit down on the ground. Okay, now imagine you're three days into following this itinerant Jewish preacher around the Judean countryside. It's hot. It's, it's, it's arid. It's dry. And you think, okay, this guy, we've heard about what he's done in the past for other people. And I've heard about when he fed 5,000 people. Like, I... I can't count that high, but it looks like there's less than that, okay? So, like, he should be able to feed us. They had all this food left over that they gave away to the poor. Like, like where is that for us? And then Jesus just says, hey, everybody, sit down. And you're looking, and there's no baskets of food, right? I mean, there's no, there's no ship pulling up to the shore with a ton of food on it. I mean, they're just having to look at this guy. They're just having to look at Jesus, and he says, sit down, and they just have to say, okay, okay. See, deep faith for us, like, Jesus is calling us to do something. Maybe Jesus is calling us to humble ourselves and, and, and forgive and restore a relationship. And you're looking around and you're saying, okay, but, but where's, where's their apology? And but Jesus, where's, where's their humility? Right, because if, because if you're going to ask me to do this, like, I need to, I need to see a little proof before, I, before I'll take the step. I don't know if it's worth the risk. It's like those people saying, Jesus, I don't, I don't see any food here, man. But they just obey. They sit down. Or maybe Jesus is saying, hey, your neighbor, your, next, your, your, neighbor, your, your, your coworker, your family member, and they, they need me. <laughs> they, they need to hear the good news of what I've done for them and who I am. And we say, Jesus, I would, but man, I've not seen, I've not seen any inkling of spiritual life in them. I mean, I've not seen any, I've not seen any, proof of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. And Jesus is just saying, no, 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 just go. Just do it. Just obey. See, deep faith obeys Jesus. And then the, the third thing is deep, deep faith trusts. 
All right, so here, so here, here these people are. They, they've been following Jesus around. They have absolutely nothing. He tells them to sit down. He feeds them. And then what does he do? Like how hard, like how hard is it to leave a good situation, right? Like anybody ever been to like a, like a wedding reception with like really good food and music and friends to hang out with? How hard is it to leave that? All my introverts are like not hard. All my Enneagram sevens in the room are like, dude, right? I mean, it like, or like how hard is it to leave like a, a, a restaurant with a great buffet, you know, where they got like, four kinds of pies and cakes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, how hard is it to leave something that's going really well? I mean, these people are out in the middle of nowhere. They don't know where their next meal's coming from. There's not, you know, an exit sign with the food displayed on it so they know on the way home they can map it out and make sure they have a next meal. They've been following Jesus out into the wilderness for three days. He feeds them miraculously. And then what does he say to do? After, after he had uh, sent them away. That's it, man. Like, Jesus, they came to him, they came with nothing, they got everything they needed, and then he just said, all right, go and do likewise. Go back home. Go back to your life. Go back to being a mom. Go back to being a teacher. Go back to being a tax collector. And take what I've given you and take it with you. Like, how hard, like, that would have been tough. Like, put yourself in that situation. That would have been tough to think, man, I don't, Jesus, like, can you give me some food on the way? I don't, we don't know if they gave them food for the, for the trip. Jesus just sent them away and they just had to go. They just had to trust. They had to trust that what Jesus had given them had been enough. And so today I just wonder how many of us would be willing to, to follow Jesus into deep faith. So in 1859, there's a guy named Charles Blondin and he kind of burst into fame. So he's a, he's a, he's a man from England and he was a tightrope walker. And for about the past decade, he'd been doing these like incredible tightrope feats. Like, it, like in England, he'd gone across big buildings, he'd gone across rivers, he had come to New York and done some like really crazy top, like high wire tightrope acts. And then he, then in the, but in the summer of 1859, he said, in, in a huge publicity, he was going to walk across Niagara Falls, a quarter of a mile one way on a tightrope, 150 feet above the roaring waters. I mean, if he falls, it's, a, it's, it's immediate death if he falls. Okay, so, so the day comes, he shows up, thousands of people turn up. There he goes, he goes across the tightrope and he comes back and everybody cheers. And they're like, man, that was awesome, great job. And then he said, hey, how many of you guys think I can do it in like a burlap sack? And everybody's like, no, don't, you know, don't try it. And he goes across a quarter mile and then comes back and everybody's cheering, everybody's you know, chanting his name. And then he says, hey, how about this? I'll do it on a bicycle. So the dude gets on a bicycle, and he goes across Niagara Falls on a tightrope and rides back. And at that point, everybody's like, you're a god, you know, you know, Charles. They're chanting his name, everybody's cheering. And then listen to this. He has like a portable cooking system. He puts it on his shoulders, and he walks across, cooks an omelet, and eats it while on the tightrope. This is, not, this is no joke. This is real life, okay? This actually happened. So then he says, okay, this time, like everybody, like I'm going to need some help from you guys. So he walks across into Canada, and he comes back with a wheelbarrow. And he says, all right, who's willing to get in? And it is dead quiet. No one says a word. And he starts asking. He says, you guys, you've seen me on a bicycle. 
You've seen me in a, in, a, in a burlap sack. You've seen me walk and carry, make an omelet and eat it. And no one's willing to get in the wheelbarrow. And nothing. Nobody. And I just wonder today how many of us have been coming here week in, week out. You've grown up in, you've grown up in church. Maybe you've grown up hearing the words of Jesus. And Jesus is just asking, would you come into the deep faith with me? Would you really trust me and find satisfaction in me? Quit chasing fulfillment in your job or in your family or your spouse or your career or your kids. But I want you to find satisfaction in me. I want you to find fulfillment. And it's scary. And it means we have to not sacrifice, but it means we have to give up stuff. But in return, we get to meet Jesus and feast on him and be satisfied. And if you're sitting here today and it's like, man, I don't even know if I've ever met Jesus. And it's real simple. And Jesus came from heaven and he lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death, paying the penalty for our sins and he rose from the grave, making it possible for us to be a new creation on earth, totally new and then forever with him in heaven. And all we have to do is do what the crowd did. We come to him with nothing. And we say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you. And you can do that today. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to finish worshiping this Jesus. Jesus, thank you for how much you love us. Thank you that in a world that offers so many things that don't satisfy, maybe for a minute, maybe for a moment, maybe at face value, but, but I mean, there are those of us in the room that have tasted those things, and it's just not, it's just not what it promised to be. It's not all it cracked up to be wealth and a career and, 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 and whatever it is. And Jesus, I pray for, for us in the room to find deep satisfaction in you. That Jesus, this week, as we commit to meet with you, that we bring nothing to you, but just come to you for who you are and what you have for us, Jesus. Meet us there. I pray for what we, we hear Stephen talk about in Acts where it says, come to the Lord Jesus Christ with repentance and let times of refreshing fall on your life. Jesus, we know only true refreshment and abundant life comes from you, from who you are. So Jesus, be with us this week. It's in your name we pray, amen.